so, so worthy. I don't want to waste any time. I want to thank all the visitors again for coming to hang out with us and worship our King, worship Jesus who is the Christ. And I want to jump right into this text. Um, I'm going to pray. We're going to jump on Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Let me pray first for us. Father in heaven, you alone are worthy to be praised. Apart from your son Jesus, we have no credibility to stand before you. Lord, um, we would be altogether consumed, wiped out, eliminated. We couldn't talk our way out. We couldn't lawyer up with earthly ideas and earthly lawyers, but we thank you for your son Jesus, who is our advocate. He works pro bono for us, but he pays full price for sin. So we thank you for this free gift of grace, and we pray, God, that um, as so often we can drift into boredom, even with your word, that you would ignite us today. Ignite us to see your word anew. Ignite us to worship and live for you. Ignite us to share the gospel with everybody on our block and all the, even the folk who hate us. Ignite us, God, by the flame of your Holy Spirit and by the word, the inerrant, perfect word. So have your way in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 18. Last time I had the opportunity to share here um, with you guys, I was in Romans 1, 16 through 17. I just want to continue that track um, and continue to seek to unpack and unravel um, the revelation. First, we did in the early chapter, in the early part of the chapter, Romans 16, the revelation of God's righteousness is being revealed by faith, and now we will dive into the wrath of God being revealed. Let me read for your hearing. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. By their unrighteousness oppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the, his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, he, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Amen. Romans chapter 1. The universal need for humanity is diagnosed. The universal need for humanity is diagnosed. Humanity is altogether starving and depraved and in need of a saving God. Amen. And that plan, that mode which the Lord uses 
we, we know it as believers as the gospel. So the universal need for all humanity to be right before God is the gospel. But nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their desperate need for Jesus or their unwillingness to admit it. Jesus said in the passage in Mark 2, it's not, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He was defending against the criticism of the Pharisees on his policy of hanging out with the least, the last, and the lost, like tax collectors and sinners, like us. Jesus did not mean by this saying about the doctor that some people are righteous so that they don't need salvation, but that some people think they are. In that condition of self-righteousness, they see no need to ever come to Christ. For just as we go to the doctor only when we admit that we are ill and cannot cure ourselves, so we go to Christ only when we admit that we are guilty sinners and cannot save ourselves. Self-diagnosis is irresponsible and consistently inaccurate. And if you grew up, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey in the hood, and my mother had all types of ways to self-diagnose, to diagnose me and fix me. If you're from that era, I'm a 70s baby. My mother could take a cigarette, tear it up, put spit on it, put it on my bee sting and make the stinger come out. No HMO, spit and cigarettes. All types of mother wit remedies. Castor oil. Oh, I, my grandfather, when I had a fever, he said, listen, I'm gonna give you this stocking with these onions in it. And you wrap it around your neck and the fever will be drawn out by the onions. I just was a stinking now with a fever. Self-diagnosis is irresponsible and consistently inaccurate. The gospel brings us to the true diagnosis of our hopeless condition in the sight of God. In this passage, Paul seeks to show God's diagnosis of all humanity, Jew and Gentile. And that diagnosis, they are sick and sin. And the same antibiotic and prescription brings healing to this condition. And that is repentance in the name of Jesus Christ and belief in the gospel. All men and women are with Christ being the exception, all men and women are sinful, guilty, and without excuse before God. We are already under his wrath, already stand condemned, apart from a sovereign saving act of a sovereign saving God. Man is altogether miserable, doomed, and hopeless. So my first idea as I seek to unravel this passage um, is the revelation of God's wrath on all men. The revelation of God's wrath on all men. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. This word for, this word denotes that the apostle is about to give a reason for what he had just said. The verse continues the argument of the epistle, which was designed to establish the, in, the intention developed in Romans 1, 17. I'll read that for your hearing. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That idea is that God's plan for justification is revealed in the gospel. To show this, it was necessary to show that all other plans had failed and will fail no matter who you are 
Jew or Gentile, no matter who you are, North Philly, South Philly, Germantown, Mount Airy, New Jersey, all of us are altogether miserable and there is no medicine, there is no credibility that we can bring to the table to be accepted by God. The wrath of God is revealed. Let us deal with the question, what is the wrath of God? God's wrath is the present reality in which people outside of Christ stand and the future judgment of all sin and those who do not embrace the gospel. First, I, we want to understand God's wrath is not to be compared with man's goofy, emotional, unstable, sinful, aimless, angry outbursts. God doesn't get angry like us. But I want to make something clear. I didn't grow up knowing that God was angry. I just thought he was a little disappointed. You know, because I was told that you believe in Jesus, he takes away your sins. I thought he had like an eraser and he went over to the docket and just erased my name. I didn't realize that there was such penalty for it because I was only told just say these words, walk this out and you're done. You're done. God is angry with sin. He is not a little disappointed. He is so angry that I just want you to think about a day, a bad day you've had. I want to think about one sin you've committed. You couldn't handle the weight of that sin on your own day. Jesus takes the weight of sin for all men, for all time, for all life. Because the father is angry. Sin isn't just, oh, you'll make it up. It's okay. Sin is a violation, high treason against a holy God. High treason. But God's anger isn't ugly and goofy. You know how we light off on people. God never gets angry. God never does something he has to apologize for later. There is no malice, no animosity, no irrational behavior. God has no desire for revenge. He's got a plan for salvation. However, God's wrath and anger is completely free from any crazy ingredients. His wrath is real. Catch this oxymoron. He has a holy wrath, a perfect wrath. God never does things. crazy, off-keel, offset, but he does them perfectly controlled according to his purpose and according to his plan. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't misjudge. He perfectly judges us against the backdrop of his perfect standard. Apart from Christ's grace, any who stand before this perfect judge will be simply found guilty, period. And we are full deserving of God's wrath. We are full. I, don't, I was at the airport for about two weeks now. I've been on a plane every doggone day. And I sit with folk. And as I begin to share the gospel with folk and just even kick it, I didn't meet anybody in my several conversations. That if you know me, I'll get with you immediately. I'm talking all the way on the plane ride to a stranger. I'm talking all the way at the restaurant to a stranger. I haven't met anybody, and I've been on the plane about four times in three weeks, that did anything wrong, that was worthy of any punishment. I haven't met one yet. Man, 
One of them looked at me like, well, you need Jesus. Because I told him, well, I'm a sinner. I, 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 I sin, I lie. I, 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 he says, man, you do need Jesus then. <laughs> he didn't need him. But Christ absorbs the guilt and shame that we bring on ourselves and through repentance. Turning from and turning to, turning from our sins and turning to God, we avoid the wrath that we truly deserve. When I think about wrath, I often think about the antithesis. I think about the satisfaction that the Father gives us in the Son. And I think about this song, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Y'all say it. Jesus, once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. We have to realize we were enemies. We didn't have a small disagreement. We didn't have a falling out. We didn't have a slight disagreement that we had to walk, work it out. No. We were all together miserable, separated, completely alienated from God. Once an enemy, now I get to dine in the presence of the king. Thank God for his communion that we get invited to the throne room of God to sit with our king and sip on a 2,000-year-old bottle of wine when we get to heaven. That's a fine bottle of wine. We get to click our glass with his glass and rejoice at his triumph. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to veer a little bit. When I think about the wrath of God, I think about that movie Taken. Anybody seen that movie Taken? Well, in that movie Taken, there was a, <laughs> there was a daughter and a father in the movie. The father is divorced from the mother and, and is set apart in a semi and has set and has taken part in this semi-elaborate scheme for this daughter to fly around in Europe to go see you 2 or whoever they were going to see. But there was a plot and in that plot they get to Europe and they get kidnapped by women traffickers that are going to send them into bondage and prostitution. But I want you to notice something that maybe you missed in that movie. Did you get the disposition of the daughter? about her father long as he when he brought that gift she dropped that jaw for a counterfeit dad I ain't mad at him for something that was bigger and then when the father didn't let her get her way I hate you and she stormed away don't that look like us Well, as the story goes, she winds up in Europe. She gets plotted on. The traffickers come in to take her. She's on the phone with the father. The father tells her to get under the bed. He comforts her. I want you to notice while she was under the bed, he said, focus. He comforted her in her calamity. And then he says some sobering words. They are going to take you. <laughs> Sin has taken us. 
sin has taken us. They didn't argue under that bed. She had no choice in the matter. Dragged her away to bondage. To bondage. The daughter and her friends lied and their sins found them out. The friend upon the dad's arrival as he began to come to the country to look for his daughter relentlessly, she was dead. Her wrath wasn't satisfied. She died in her lie. And I want you to see this, where I've had my struggles in the restaurants, you and I are completely responsible and culpable for our sin. I'm only human, don't cut it. I'm not perfect, don't cut it. We're responsible for our sin. But I want you to notice this part of the movie. The father relentlessly pursued his daughter. He killed folk. He shot his own friend's wife. He blew up buildings, tore through all of France. To the end, he kills the final person. And to notice what the guy at the final says, we can negotiate. You cannot negotiate with God for the sins that we owe. There is no negotiation with the father. It must be satisfied fully. It's got to be satisfied fully. So before he could even say negotiate good, pop. He was down, and he rescues his child, isn't that good, out of bondage. Though her own sins could, could have and should have killed her and separated from her father, the dad's pursuit changed now. And if you remember at the end of the movie, she had a whole different attitude. She had a whole different attitude. What was, what, her added, what was revealed? We're still in Romans 18. For the wrath of God is revealed, revealed. It was uncovered. Her lies and her stuff was brought to light. But the father's pursuit, in the midst of her lack of reverence, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It was uncovered. The lack of reverence, of wickedness in general, not meeting God's standard of holiness. All of our feeble attempts to pay God off for sins don't and won't ever work. God doesn't take bribes of good deeds and works. Our sins need propitiation, which Paul bangs out in chapter 3. Propitiation, easy word, wrath bearer. Christ is our propitiation. He is our wrath bearer. He is our atonement. As he lays out this universal diagnosis of all men, wrath is deserved against all those who practice unrighteousness and ungodlessness of men. Wickedness is unrighteousness and godlessness is ungodlessness. Well, what am I saying? In the movie, the dad was a special ops soldier. He said to the dude, I have a certain set of skills that I've acquired over a lifetime. Christ is fit to save. He is fit to save from the uttermost, completely capable to handle the wrath of God, tempted in all ways, yet without sin, holy, harmless, and undefiled. He is our great high priest. 
This movie was about the relentless pursuit of the father. If you notice, the daughter was only at the beginning and at the end. Our life is about Jesus. It's not about us. We got to move from this me-centered theology. It's not about us. Be grateful that he's taken his enemies and hired them on his staff. It's not about us. It's so easy to drift to us because we struggle so much. So we're constantly praying for our struggles. But the Father is perfectly, accurately, skillfully working out his purposes in each and everyone's life. I want to encourage you. He hears and he cares. He hears and he cares. My charge to you, as I think about the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness by men who, by their own righteousness, suppress the truth, we need covenant renewal. We need to see the wonder of the gospel of grace anew. Why? It can get dusty. It can get common. I thank God when I come here on Sunday mornings, Shai is in here leading or B is in here leading prayer reminding us of our sin and remind us, reminding us of our Savior because we can become stagnant in our walk. We must preach the gospel to ourselves. We must understand the quorum day before the face of God in the presence of the fullness of joy. We forget that we deserve wrath, death, and separation for God. We take God's grace for granted. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our wrath and satisfying the Father's demands. Might we live every day in light of the gospel and might we freely receive the weighty truth and not by our negligence and laziness like those who do what? He says, suppress the truth with ungodliness. The essence of sin is godlessness. Suppress, that word means to put in prison, to snuff out the truth, to make God's truth inoperative, to explain away God after knowing better. In essence, godlessness is wicked men seeking to get rid of God. Though that can't happen, so wickedness reveals that men try to live as if God is dead. They try to live as if the resurrection never happened. That's what we do. We suppress. We put it in prison. This is what a world of men and our sin did at a hill called Calvary. Jesus is God, and in his three-year ministry, he healed and helped, and he gave hope to all types of people. And for that, he was brutally murdered by way of crucifixion. They tried, we tried, to get rid of God. Sinful man tried to create our own way. Help us, God. Help us, God. The passage challenge. I want to challenge you here. We consciously block out our God by our sin. We block out and it fleshes out in our life. We block out our neighbors. We block out our family, our spouses, our children, our friends, roommates. We live lives often of avoidance, isolationism, individualism. All these are anti-community. We want to suppress the truth. We think if we're alone, we won't look so bad if it's just us. 
I don't know about you, but I, I struggle with that. So often we have performance issues. We're trying to perform. We want to look good in people's eyes. And that's anti-community. So that's why, thank God for the 26 one anotherings in the Bible. So we bear one another's burdens, amen? We love one another. We spur one another to good works. We were made for covenant. We were made in covenant with God and with one another. The gospel transcends race and gender and family and relationship. It unites all those who embrace it. That's why we believe in adoption. We have been brought out of isolation into family. That's the idea of adoption. We do this with the hopes of connecting the disconnected to the reality of God's intention. Unity. We seek through adoption to bring an end to the abandonment mentality many orphans suffer with. But by intentional act of adopting, we change that child's life forever. That's why we cry, Abba, Father. Thank you, Jesus. He has adopted us. He's given us his name at baptism. I'm so glad. Though I was born of Hattie and Douglas Sr., I was adopted by God. My second idea in this train is the realization of God's power to rescue sinners. The realization of God's power to rescue sinners. I've stated already, I'll reiterate, we are guilty. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Why are they guilty? Why are we guilty? Because God is plain to those proponents of godlessness. Paul teaches us that the knowledge of God is plain. That word, that word plain there in the Greek means it's manifest, it's evident, it's being made public. Doug Logan translation, it's not fuzzy. It's concrete. Paul tells us it's clearly perceived. It lies open before everyone's eyes. It's evident. It's a clear layout of his beauty and creation. The language is the invisible attributes, his divinity. Jump with me over to, I think we were in Psalm 19, or let's jump to Job 12, verse 7 and 9. 7 through 9. Look what it says. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? The divine artist has revealed himself through the beauty of his creation. Creation knowledge is enough to be condemned. So those who suppress the truth are without excuse. So this, Calvin unpacks this, John Calvin, the great reformer, he unpacks that man would look on the beauty and the wonder of God's creation and by that be propelled and compelled to identify with this awesome creator and worship him. But this passage is unraveling the wrath of God being revealed because folk see this creation, they suppress the truth, and they, they don't worship him. And so he says, so since they've seen this beauty of creation, it's enough to condemn, so they're without excuse. So nobody complete innocent, because nobody complete ignorant. God has made it manifest. 
He said he's manifested. Our response to divine revelation reveals the condition of our heart towards God. The condition of our hearts determines our response to anything we receive from God. God uses situation in our lives and he reveals some stuff to us through it. Our response is a view into our heart and we are are we gripped by grace? That's the challenge. Are we gripped by grace? Are we struggling to even fake it? What is God showing you in your life? How will you respond to God? Will you be invoked to worship him or will you become defensive, unresponsive, and ignore God? My plea is worship him. In spirit and truth, he is beautiful. And I am awestruck by the blood he shed for filthy sinners like us. I am accepted in the beloved. I love that text. I'm accepted in the beloved. In this world where we struggle with acceptance, where we struggle with, with, with relationships, where we struggle with commitment, in Christ you're accepted in the beloved. Not by your credibility. We have none. But by the cross by the cross of our king. I encourage you to be honest with God as you process through your struggles. Be honest with God in our response to the things he's saying to you. Don't sermonize it away. I'm a preacher, that's what I do. I sermonize it away. Theologize it away. I philosophize it away. Maybe some of you like me and you try to text message away and try to talk to your friend instead of responding to what God is saying to you. Maybe you email it away so you can have spell check. We must face our fears and our doubts and our struggles. Don't put them in prison. Don't suppress them. Normally when you judge, normally when you go before a judge after you've robbed a bank, you go before a judge and you confess your crimes, you get locked up. You get put in prison. But to the righteous judge, when you confess your crimes, you get freed up. You confess to him and get free. It's an upside down kingdom. Freedom in confession. Ain't that good? Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. We talked about the revelation of God's wrath, then transitioned to the, re to the realization of God's eternal power to rescue sinners. Now let's talk about my last and third idea, the revelation of man's depravity. Verse 21, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God to images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We don't realize how far we are from God until after he saves us. And we are broken by the beauty and the bigness of the cross. I call this the beauty and mystery of brokenness. It's, it's a special thing God does with that brokenness. He meets us in our brokenness. He says a broken and contrite spirit he will not despise. Brokenness is a gift from God. Brokenness is a gift. If you, I think about 
tracks and trains that we ride in Christianity. Often we are not nowhere in the zone of Jesus. And if not for the, if not for the crash, we'd have continued in destruction. But thank God for the brokenness. Thank God for breaking down our plans and our schemes that had nothing to do with God to remind us of our desperate need, our desperate inability. Because sometimes we get saved and we forget that we didn't save ourselves. Sometimes we listen to so much 103.9 and podcasts and stuff. We, we, we've moved from broken to fixed and all I need is a tune-up every now and again. No, we need a clear, full dose of the gospel every doggone day. I don't, we got to preach it to ourselves. We got to breathe it. We got to smell it. We got to pray a lot. We got to repent a lot. We got to read the Bible a lot. And we got to hang with a bunch of people a lot who do the same. Brokenness. Thank God for brokenness. I thank God in my marriage for brokenness. I thank God for showing my wife how she was going to break me. If I didn't straighten up and stop lying and living a double life as a preacher. If not for her brokenness, I continue down the track of stupidity and jam up my family. And her brokenness domino to my brokenness and that brokenness led to worship of God it led to renewed a renewed heart a renewed mind and a reminder that we never graduate the Bible only calls us children of God never calls us adults of God never we ain't grown I know you waited to 18 to move out and get your own place. You still ain't grown in the economy and the dichotomy of the kingdom. You will always be needy. You will always need to be fed, spoon-fed by God. You're never off breast milk. Never. Never. Thank God that we aren't. Thank God for the dependence.